We turn tonight for scripture reading to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We'll read the chapter. We take as our text the first four verses of the chapter. We hear the inspired word of God. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body. And be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. And there is no respect of persons. We read God's word that far. 
As I stated, we take the first verses, verses 1 through 4 as our text. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the ascension of Jesus Christ bodily into heaven 40 days after his resurrection from the dead is the final of his earthly acts of redemption. He came to earth in the form of a baby, born in Bethlehem. He died on the cross outside Jerusalem around 30 AD. He arose again three days later and appeared to the disciples then in various ways for the next 40 days. And then ascended into heaven. Ten days later, to pour out his Spirit on Pentecost. Beloved, the Christian faith is based on historic facts. The incarnation, the virgin birth, the atonement, death on the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, as well as the second coming of our Lord. So little is made at time of those historical facts. And the emphasis is all about the believer's experience instead. Instead of the facts that relate to Christ and to the wonder of salvation. The Bible makes those biblical facts the basis of our Christian experience. Our experience as Christians always is based on the gospel facts. And out of those facts flows our comfort, our hope. And upon those facts, our faith is built and based. This is what the Apostle Paul is doing by the inspiration of the Spirit in the passage here. Emphasizing the glorious wonder and the work of Jesus Christ and what He accomplished. And then building our theology and building our experience on that wondrous work. Here's what Christ did. And now here's what that means for you. This is how your life now is to flow out of this historical reality. The Christian life, therefore, beloved, is built upon the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and our union to Him as those that have been crucified with Him, raised with Him, and now ascended with Him. Christ has taken hold of us and He's united us to Himself. The emphasis of the book of Colossians is on Christ as the head of the church. We're the body, He's the head. And the glory of Christ and the wonder then of that union that is ours with Him. What does it mean that we're united to Christ? That union, beloved, is marvelous. That union to Christ dictates the whole of our life in the midst of this world. And that's the point here the Apostle is establishing. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things that are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. In the midst of the brokenness and the struggles of earthly life, in the midst of the sins and the Battles against temptation that we face. 
We have a marvelous truth that's set before us. You belong to Jesus Christ. And belonging to Jesus Christ, the life of Christ is what lives within you. That life that pulses through your veins is not merely an earthly life that's going to perish. It's a life that's from above. It's a life that's the life of Christ who's seated at God's right hand. Now what does that look like as we live in the midst of this world? Our earthly lives are to be consistent with that heavenly union that is ours with Christ. We need to put our mind and our actions where our life is. Our life is hid with Christ. And therefore, we need to seek Him in all things. We look this evening, beloved, at the wonder of the believer's union with Christ. Noting, first of all, that union. Secondly, the exhortations then that follow. And finally, the comfort here that's spoken of, of the return of Christ and our glorious perfection as a result of that wonder. First of all, we look at the fact of that union where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. The wonder of the ascension is that Jesus Christ went into heaven in his human nature in order that he would be seated at God's right hand in glory. And so we confess right now, Jesus, as to his human nature, is seated at the right hand of God in glory. Now, what is the meaning of Jesus being taken from this earth and being brought into heaven, his ascension into heaven? First of all, we need to say a few things about heaven. The Bible implies that heaven is somewhere up. But the Bible uses a lot of different language to talk about heaven. It uses the word heaven to refer to a number of different things. And from each of the references, we need to determine what is the meaning. In other words, we can think of some of the references that God looked down from heaven upon the sons of men. We read about fire coming down from heaven upon the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We read of the voice of God heard from heaven speaking to his son Jesus Christ on several occasions. Holy men in the Bible are presented as lifting up their hands to heaven in prayer or looking up to heaven. There are times when men even are told are said to have ascended into heaven. Think of Elijah. As Elijah went up in the chariot as a fire and he ascended up into heaven. Jesus is presented as having been in heaven when he spoke to Stephen. Stephen looked up and he saw the Son of Man seated on God's right hand. Think of Jesus speaking to Saul on the road to Damascus. So that Saul heard a voice and it's identified as the voice of Jesus that was coming from heaven. Then we have a remarkable passage in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 2 where Paul speaks of a man being caught up unto the third heaven. Now as we think about these various references, we can understand that the Bible is talking about heaven in at least three different ways. And perhaps that gives us some insight also into the way in which Paul makes reference by inspiration to the third heaven. First of all, there are passages that talk about the sky as heaven. And so that when the Bible mentions heaven, it's talking about the sky. 
Psalm 104, verse 12. By them shall the fowls of the heaven have their habitation, which sing among the branches. Then there are some passages that talk about heaven being more the universe, which encompasses the stars, all of the planets. Psalm 8, verse 3. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained. But then finally, heaven is referenced in the Bible as God's dwelling place. That's the way that we think of it often as we think about heaven and we think about Jesus' ascension into heaven, the place where God dwells. And that's the way in which the Apostle Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2. When he talks about that third heaven, he equates it with paradise, being brought into that third heaven, being brought into paradise. And while the Bible talks about various levels in heaven, in a sense, with the reward, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 90-fold, nevertheless, it talks about heaven in general as God's dwelling place. And that's the significance that we have here. While we don't know exactly why Paul made reference to the third heaven, perhaps it was, in terms of those three different uses of heaven in Scripture, we take the reference of Jesus' ascension into heaven as Jesus ascending into the place where God dwells. And typically in the Bible, it's identified as that which is up. The place where God takes his elect children into at the moment of death and their souls, and ultimately that place that will be transformed into the new heaven and new earth where God will dwell with his people to all eternity. And we ask ourselves, what kind of a place is heaven? It's where God lives. But we know that that also is not entirely correct because God is everywhere present. God is present with us everywhere that we are. Wherever God's children are gathered, their God is present with us by His Spirit. He's not confined merely to a place called heaven. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Not only were they created at the same time, but they were created equally pure and equally glorious and beautiful. The earth was created as a place where the children of men would dwell and enjoy life in body and in soul. They would enjoy seasons. They would bring forth children. They would interact with all of the various aspects of the earthly creation, the plants, the animals, And they would discover and develop the hidden riches and the treasures that this earth had to offer. But we realize there was soon a major difference. The king whom God had set over the earth rebelled, Adam. And as a result, sin entered into the earthly creation. And he surrendered himself and the service of this world to the devil. The result for this earth is unspeakable. The effect of sin on this earthly creation is such that darkness now covers the earth. God's wrath is evident in all of the various aspects of the creation. The curse on the ground with the weeds, we see it among the animals as now they're vicious and they destroy one another. We see the effect of sin as sin causes untold sorrow and damage in the world in which we live. But heaven is different. 
Heaven isn't affected by sin. It's not affected by the fall of Adam and Eve. Heaven's the place where God shows His love and His favor. There's no darkness in heaven. God's love is present in all of its fullness and wonder. And it's where the souls of the righteous, it's where the angels behold always the glorious face of Jehovah God and the wonder of life and fellowship with Him. At the time of the ascension, Jesus left this sin-cursed world in order to enjoy the bliss and the wonder of friendship and fellowship in the heavenly realm. To be with God, to enjoy the glory and the wonder of that heavenly life. And we realize also that his ascension did mean a certain change for heaven. In that previous, the devil was yet approaching the souls in heaven, casting doubt upon their legitimate place in heaven. Christ now casts the devil out. And now joy comes to heaven as heaven is a place where God dwells in perfection with his people. There was no more reason for Jesus to stay on earth. No more reason for him to walk among us in this realm of death. He went to heaven. But there's more than that. He had work to do. Work that he only could carry out from heaven. Work that required his presence in heaven. So that it was a work that involved establishing intimate life and fellowship with his children by the power of his spirit. Ruling over all things on behalf of his Father. So that Jesus now occupies the right hand of God and is given this marvelous place in glory in order to carry out the work that God had for him with the goal of bringing all of his children into the perfection of that fellowship. We confess that when we say that Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He has perfect authority over everything as he's seated on God's right hand. He received all authority. He received it in the way of suffering, in the way of pain, as a man. There's never been a creature who crawled lower through the dust and said more deeply, I am nothing, thou alone art great. One who suffered the full wrath of God So that he had to cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Never has there been a creature that prayed like he did. Father, glorify thy name in me. He was humbled that he might be exalted. And through Jesus Christ, God then restores the creature to the place of glory, the place of honor for which he created it. Through Jesus Christ, God exalts man again to that glorious position of fellowship and communion with the living God. He gives man the right again of entrance into heaven and into the presence of Jehovah God. And in Jesus Christ, God exalts then His creation, restoring that creation in the end time as the new heaven and the new earth. All things reconciled through Christ. Now the apostle is speaking here then of that wonder 
by which Jesus ascended into heaven and is now seated at God's right hand. And he says in verse 1, If ye then be risen with Christ. Now the apostle has stressed the reality that Jesus' life and death impacts us. Impacts us very practically. He stressed the fact in the previous chapters of the fact that Jesus Christ loads us with benefits, such as the wonder of His work. His work is such that He lays down His life in our place and He earns for us unspeakable benefits, as Psalm 68 talks about, loading us with all of these spiritual benefits. He noted in chapter 1, verse 21, that we have been reconciled by the death of Jesus Christ And you, that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. In chapter 2, verse 20, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? In verse 3 here, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. You've been regenerated. You have been given a life that's from above. And as new creatures in Jesus Christ, the result is that you have a life now that's hid with Christ, who is now in heaven. That new life in Christ supersedes all natural distinctions. And he emphasizes that. There's no place for distinction between individuals or between races. Now the if here, if ye be risen with Christ, does not mean to present the matter as though it's uncertain. That's not the idea of the grammar here. Rather, this is presented as a fact. If you are risen with Christ, and that's a fact, you are, then it follows, you must seek the things that are above. The wonder of the resurrection and the ascension vitally affects every believer. We have been risen with Christ and now we need to live out of that new life that is ours in Christ. In other words, since, because you are risen from the dead, there's no doubt in his mind, the believer has been raised from the dead and being raised with Christ The believer now is in a new sphere of existence, a new life. He's in the kingdom of heaven. His citizenship now is citizenship in a glorious kingdom. Being raised with Christ, he's a new creature. He's a new creation. We read in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. And behold, all things are become new. That's the wonder of the life that is ours in Christ. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. The old man is mortified, and you are now hid with Christ in God. Dead to the world, dead to sin, alive in Jesus Christ justified, sanctified, and raised to a heavenly life. 
The source of your and my life is not earthly, but it's Christ. And that life has at its center Jesus Christ. So we don't find ourselves then in the midst of this world, but we find ourselves with a life that's in Christ. The hid here points to an invisible reality that we lay hold of by faith. The world doesn't believe that there's a joyful life found in Jesus Christ. They don't believe that Jesus died, rose again from the dead, and then ascended into heaven. But those that have been given faith lay hold upon this wonder. We embrace the truth. We believe that our lives are hid with Christ. We believe that we have been set apart. We are different. And the reason why we're different has nothing to do with ourselves. It's because Jehovah God has hid us in Christ. Now the fact that we are different must be evident. As water seeks its level, so those who are in Christ seek Christ. Those who are from this life seek the things that are earthly. That's the point here the apostle is establishing. So we ask, what is it to be a Christian? A Christian is one who's dead to the world, dead to sin, dead to death, and who's been raised to a new life in Jesus Christ. Paul made that confession concerning himself in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life that I live, the life that you live, is a life that is lived in the flesh by the faith of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the confession of the child of God. The life I live is not merely an earthly life that's going to perish when I die. The life that I live is a life that's from above. Jesus Christ, the life-changing one, has given to me a life that's everlasting. And I rejoice then in that wonder. I teach my children to live in that consciousness. This is who you are. This is the life that is yours. The life of Christ. And we're called then to live in all of the relationships of life, rejoicing in that grace that God has given us desiring to live more and more out of that union and reflecting the wonder of that life that is in Jesus Christ. So the ground and the basis of this new life in Christ is that we're united to Him. Jesus Christ has been established as the head of the covenant, the representative head of God's people, and we by faith have been united to Jesus Christ. We're called then to live out of Him. To live out of all the benefits that are ours in Him. Now this legal representation becomes a living experiential union in the life of God's children. When Jesus ascended into heaven, He poured out His Spirit into our hearts so that now that union becomes real. We know it. We believe it. We live in the joy and the wonder of it. We confess, 
I have been crucified with Christ. I have been raised with Him unto a newness of life. And that the life that I now live in Christ is a life that will never perish, but a life that will rule and reign to all eternity. That's the ground, the fact that is laid out here with regard to our identity. Flowing out of that are exhortations. Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Now the admonitions are necessary because of our sinful human natures. Our sinful human natures are inclined to seek the things of this life. And so the believer has to constantly be admonished to do what that new life urges and compels him to do. The believer is mindful of the need for those admonitions because he knows the constant battle that is his or hers. The battle to seek the things that are below, to get caught up in the things that are here below. While we are risen with Christ, we possess that new life in principle. It's not yet possessed in perfection. And the tendency then of that old nature is yet to seek the things here below. And that tendency is strong. And the world in which we live opposes the pursuit of spiritual things. It sets us against the pursuit of the things of the kingdom. And it constantly is trying to drag us down into the pursuit of the things that are here below. That's what the devil is constantly trying to do do with you and with me. To drag us down. To get us consumed with the things that are here below. And so sin takes hold of us. And what does that sin do? That sin drags us down. It pulls us down. Never may we underestimate the power of sin. That sin takes hold of us. And it draws us. Think of quicksand. You step into it, and it just sucks you down. There's nothing you can do. The more you struggle, the more you are sucked into it. That's the power of sin. We lie. We cheat. We look at a little pornography. We involve ourselves a bit in sexual relations outside of marriage. And what happens? The claws of sin take hold of us. And they just draw us deeper and deeper and deeper into the ways of sin. And there's nothing we can do to escape. We're weak. We're helpless. The Bible uses powerful, vivid analogies to warn us. And we can think of them again from nature, not just quicksand. Think of a huge snake that begins to swallow some animal. And that huge snake gets that animal, and you've seen pictures of this. Maybe it's a little fawn, and it starts taking that fawn in. And that fawn, pretty soon, can't fight. That fawn is just sucked all the way in until pretty soon it's in the grasps of that giant snake. That's the power of sin. It just draws you in, and it sucks you in, and there's no way out. There's no way of escape of ourselves. The only way is by a wonder of God's grace. God alone is able to rescue and to work that repentance, that sorrow. Sin and temptation are not a force to play with. It's a power against which the Bible warns. And such is the power of the things here below. 
The things here below, the things of this world and of this life draw us. And so quickly we get caught up in it. We get caught up in the fame, the excitement. By God's grace, we cry out. We cry out for mercy. We look to Him, confessing our sin, crying out for deliverance. We look to Him who is the only way of escape. The one who alone is able to grant us that grace. And we know the urgency. Repent or perish. Beloved, God makes use of admonitions, serious exhortations to keep His children out of the ways of sin. And that's what the apostle here is doing. He's addressing us. And he's saying, set your affection on the things above, not on the things of this earth. Seek those things that are above. And then the rest of the chapter is admonition after admonition. Not to allow anger to take hold of us. Not to allow envy to take a part of our life. Direct the whole of your life so that you are constantly seeking the things that are above. The things that are spiritual. And many times, those admonitions are repeated again because we're weak, because we're sinful, and because we need to hear it again and again and again. This is how you are to live. Don't let the things of this world take hold of you. Direct the whole of your life that you are seeking after and striving for the things of God, the things of His kingdom. Make the things of God the things that you pursue, and everything else subservient to them. What are those things? Seek those things which are above. Set your affection on things above. It's Christ. All the benefits that are ours in Christ. All the wondrous benefits that are ours as a result of His ascension into heaven and the pouring out of His Spirit. The above is in contrast with the things that are here below. Set your affection on the things that are above, not on the things that are here below. The things that are earthly aren't necessarily sinful in themselves. We understand that. There are things that we need. Food, clothing, money, all kinds of relationships, family, husband, wife, children, co-workers, These things aren't necessarily sinful. It's proper to have them. It's proper to live with them. That's not the point of the text. The question is, are you pursuing those things as ends in themselves? Are you pursuing those things for your joy and for your happiness? Are you trusting in those things? When you're setting your heart on the things that are here below, then it's impossible to be seeking the things that are of Christ. Self-denial is necessary. Denying self in order to pursue the things that are spiritual. Seeking Christ. Seeking the forgiveness of sins. Seeking His grace. Seeking His Spirit. Seeking the courage to do what's right. Seeking His Word. His works. His law. His kingdom. The idea is set your mind and set your hearts and think on those things. So that a mental, reordin- a mental reorientation is what's necessary here. 
that our mental activity is directed consciously to spiritual things. The life of Christ, the things of the kingdom of God are more precious than money, even more precious than relationships, more precious than marriage, more precious than children, is Christ and the wonder of my walk with Him. Lasting joy and lasting happiness are not going to be found in earthly things or earthly relationships. It's not going to be found in money, fame, glory, and honor here below. The child of God seeks the heavenly life which is hid with Christ. And that heavenly life involves righteousness, sanctification, mercy, meekness, love, kindness, all the blessings of salvation set forth here. The child of God is seeking these things. Now there's a difference between this kind of seeking and the ordinary kind of seeking with which we're familiar Ordinarily, we're seeking something that's lost. It's gone. The seeking one doesn't seek as actually possessing what he seeks. He lost his keys, and he can't find them. And he's looking for those keys. God's children are seeking that which they actually possess. They seek the life in Christ that they have. And it's because they possess that life that they seek after Christ and that they desire it. They seek to live that life to a higher, more glorious manner. The dead, they're not seeking the things that are heavenly, the things that are spiritual. It's the living, those who are alive in Christ, who are seeking those spiritual things. But secondly, ordinarily individuals seek something but they don't know where to look. I lost my keys and I don't know where they are. They look everywhere until finally they find what they've been seeking after. This seeking is a seeking in which the seeker knows where to look. God directs his children to seek those things that are at God's right hand, those things that are spiritual, those things that are heavenly. He tells us where to go. He tells us where to find them. And God gives them to us as a gift of His grace. But finally, there is something that is common with this seeking and our seeking. All seeking involves a person consciously and intently setting their mind on the thing that's being sought. You're focused. And you're focused on finding what is the object of that search. The child of God sets his mind, sets his heart, sets his entire existence, the whole of his life, on pursuing the blessings of God and the fullness of that life that's from above. He reaches out to God. He directs his life toward God and sets his affections on them. That means think about them. Set your minds on them. Make time in your day consciously to think about the spiritual things and be concerned about them. There's a single-mindedness that's being set forth here in our text. You have God. You have the life that is found in Jesus Christ. And now you're to set yourself single-mindedly in the pursuit of that spiritual life. That's the controlling factor in your life. 
Now that takes work. That takes effort. It requires of us that we develop godly habits. That we spend time in the Word. It requires admonitions because we're weak and we fail. It requires of parents that we admonish our children. That we direct them in the right way. And Paul repeats these admonitions. Set your affection. Seek. Those two have the same force. They go together. In order to seek heaven, you need to be thinking heaven. In order to seek spiritual things, you need to be thinking about spiritual things. As young people, what is your heart set on? What are you seeking? As children, what is it that you pursue? What is it that you seek after? What gives you joy and happiness? And as adults, this is what we seek after. The things that are spiritual. The things that are of Christ. Now naturally, we're constantly being turned back to the things of this earth. Temptations abound. And that's where the spiritual discipline is necessary. Look to Christ. Lean on Christ for that strength that He alone is able to give. Our minds, by faith, are to be constantly thinking about the ascended Christ and our living connection with Him. Now you say, practically, what does that mean? Beloved, it's very practical. Whenever we forget the reality of the rule of Jesus Christ in any part of our lives, our lives are going to revert to worldliness, fear, and unbelief. Thinking upon Christ and the wonder of His ascension means we remind ourselves, Christ is ruling all things. He's the one that's directing the traffic ahead of me. He's the one that directed my furnace to break down or my air conditioning to go out. He's the one that caused my job now to be lost. Christ is the one ruling everything. The Colossians were being led astray by Gnostics. They were false teachers who had a false view of Christ. And what was the result then? They weren't trusting in Christ as ruling over all things. They were not looking at themselves as being in unity with Him or in a bond with Him. And what was the result then? Fear took hold of them. They're living their life then in fear. They don't know how things are going to go. They don't have a trust in one who's seated at God's right hand, ruling all things. Seek Christ alone. Seek Him who is Lord. The Colossians were tempted to run to paganism, to gross immorality, keeping their eye away from Christ. Live it up. Pursue the things that you desire. Because your life now is hit up with the things here below. And they tried wrong methods then to try to maintain purity. That's expressed in the last verses of chapter 2. They had all kinds of laws. Touch not, taste not, handle not. And the apostle says, that's not going to work. That's not going to keep you in the way of purity. You need to focus on Christ. He alone is the power unto salvation. He alone is the strength by which you can maintain that godliness. Put on. Set your affection on the things. And so, beloved, we look to Christ. We do so by studying His Word, spending time in prayer, seeking those things that are spiritual, that are heavenly, 
believing by faith that God's will is good, both as to his providence and as to his commands, and denying self then and submitting to him who alone is good, and looking forward to the wonder that is ours, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Remember when Jesus was going up into heaven when he was ascending? The angels were there. And the people were distraught. And remember the comfort that the angels gave. Even as he went up, he is going to come back again. You can look forward to his return. That was the promise of the angels to the disciples. Your citizenship is not here. It's in heaven. And he's going to take you to be with him in the glory that he is entering into. In a short time, you also are going to have your everlasting residence. And that which is the goal of your life is going to be realized. The only ones going to heaven are those who lived for heaven here on earth by God's grace. And beloved, you know the difference. You've known and you've visited people who truly live out of the truth of Psalm 27. Psalm 27, 4, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. That's not just a confession of an elderly saint. That's the confession that God's children make. And as God's children, we look forward to that victory that will be ours in Christ. We look forward to the perfection of that life from above. And this characterizes us as children, young people, adults. We are not living for the things here below that are fleeting and perishing. We are living for Christ. And we're living for the things that are spiritual and heavenly. Now we know we fail, we sin miserably. We know the ties that this world has to us. Again, we cry out for mercy and we look to Christ for strength. But we know those who live for the things of this life will find it fleeting. There's no future in the lusts of the flesh. There's no reward to be found lasting in earthly possessions. All the earthly philosophies, all the wisdom of the world, all the decrees of the Judaizers, they're going to perish. And the wicked will be cast off as chaff. There's only guilt, shame, despair, And so, beloved, we repent. We turn from the vain pursuit of sin. And we look to Christ, who is our life, our all. Christ, who's ascended into heaven as our mediator, and who continues His work on our behalf, perfectly. He's the head. He's the root. He's the foundation of our life. And that means that life is safe. That life is hid with Christ. It can never be lost. That life is sure. Beloved, we need that encouragement. We need that admonition. The life we live is not ours. It's Christ's. And may we pursue Him. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, strengthen us in that glorious hope that is ours. Grant that we might know the wonder of the love with which Thou hast loved us, that we might ever live in the consciousness of the divine rule by which Thou dost govern and direct 
every aspect of our lives and cause that we might grow in our love and our delight in the things that are spiritual and heavenly. Pursue us. We pray that thou wilt forgive us our earthly mindedness and strengthen us in the pursuit of those spiritual virtues that are from above. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. We turn to Psalter number.